Well, good morning. Kids, I think, can be dismissed if they would so like. Well, one of the things that, while they're uh, kind of getting settled, we'll talk about something else here for a moment. Um, if you get our newsletter, you may have noticed that there was an announcement in there about these um, stickers that are going to be on the backs of your chairs and that they're going to contain a QR code and all this. And uh, if you are here, you would notice that there are no stickers on the backs of the chairs. Now, that is no fault of uh, Fran, who does our newsletter. She did what I asked her to do. However, I have learned that stickers and fabric don't stick all that great when applied together. Put them all on, left here, and came in on the following Sunday, and it looked like a snowstorm had kind of occurred in the church. They were all over the floor. So people helped me pick them up. We stuck them on for that particular Sunday. They stayed, at least most of them, for the duration of the service, and then they all fell off again. So um, back to the drawing board. I tend to look at it as Thomas Edison did. I did not fail. I just learned one way not to uh, have stickers on the back of the chair. However, as I, be as I continue to sort of work through that, uh, I've come up with an alternative. If you look up at the monitor, and you should see this if you're watching online, the slide is uh, on your screen that has a QR code. All right, it's the same code that was um, on the stickers. If you focus your phone on that, if you use your camera, if you have an iPhone, or if you use Google Lens, if you have an Android, uh, you can scan that code, and it will take you to a little web page that gives you an opportunity to either select that you want to fill out a connection card, that you want to submit a prayer request, or that you just want to donate online. So just trying to find some other means for people to do this trying to, I mean, you can still do all of those things the good old-fashioned way. We have connection cards in the chairs, uh, which you can fill out. You can add your prayer request to them, or we have boxes that you can put your, uh, your giving in. So just another option, Father. Father, just another option for all of you, um, especially those that uh, tend to watch us uh, via live stream. It's just one more way that you can kind of connect with us. So I just encourage you to do that. All right, so let's pray. Father God, I, I lift this message up before you. I pray for your words, your wisdom, your guidance. I pray for listening ears, open hearts and minds. As we navigate a very uh, difficult and touchy subject for some, so, Father, just guide me and, uh, and be with me as I try to express this in a way that, above all, demonstrates uh, your love and your care for people. So, I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, the title that I gave this message today <coughs> was, How Would Jesus Vote? And honestly, it's probably nothing more than just a way to pique your interest in the message. 
Because the fact is that voting is a concept that was completely foreign to Jesus, right? And his disciples and all the people that lived in the time that he lived. Um, Jesus did not live in a representative democracy. <laughs> he lived under the authoritative government of Rome. And nowhere in the entirety of Scripture is there any mention of voting in any context. So, clever titles aside, I believe that the church and as I as well have a role to play in this election season we're in. But I really struggled with, to figure out exactly what form that role should take. Now, because of something called the Johnson Amendment, any church that has a nonprofit tax status like ours is forbidden to endorse a candidate. That law has been in effect for 60 years. It's actually the Johnson in the amendment is Lyndon Johnson uh, because it was enacted in the tax code back when he was president. However, even if it was the case that I could endorse a candidate, I would not. And that is because a pastor has the responsibility to shepherd all of the sheep, not just those of one political persuasion or another. So I went around and around and back and forth all week trying to find my voice amidst all the toxic contentiousness and downright hatred that has developed around this presidential election. Fortunately, God answered my prayer for wisdom by dropping a resource in my lap. It was an interview with David Platt, who is noted pastor of McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., and the author of numerous books. You may have read one or more of his books. And so much of today's material is gleaned from his work, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Now, I don't agree with all of the conclusion that he draws, but I do agree with the process that he outlines as a way to make a decision on how to vote as a Christian. All right? So today, whether you've already made up your mind or are still on the fence about your vote, I hope you will seriously consider the following questions before you vote on November the 3rd. Now, keep in mind, this is approaching this we want to approach this whole issue of voting from a very biblical perspective, and that's what we're going to do today, all right? Um, we want to be faithful to being a church that is focused on prayer and on God's Word, all right? And so that's the platform that we are building from with this message today. So... In regards to this, perhaps the first question, oh, there's my turn toxic slide, forgot about that. Uh, perhaps the first question we need to answer is, does God call me to vote? And I think there's a number of scripture verses that we can draw from uh, in order to answer this question. First, I think that uh, God instructs us to reflect his just governance by working to promote good, to punish evil, and to protect all people from harm. Now, God's kingdom is not a democracy, right? It's a monarchy. And we all owe our allegiance to the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. God created the entirety of the world and all that is in it, and therein, he and he alone has the right to decide its fate. However, in an act of extreme grace, he has allowed all of us fallible, sinful humans to rule over his creation. 
the psalmist reflects on God's instructions to Adam uh, that were given in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. But this is from Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8. And the psalmist writes, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. And so God has instructed us to reflect his goodness in our rule of the earth. Okay, so that's first of all. Secondly, we are supposed to subject ourselves to and support government. All right? And from that, we will draw from Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. This is what Paul writes to the church in Rome. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to excuse me, to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay your taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, and then honor. And so God clearly says in this passage and in others that we are to subject ourselves to and to support government. Third, we are supposed to do justice as is, as is exemplified by God, by the character of God, and it's also expressed in the word of God. Jeremiah 22.3 says, This is what the Lord says, Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And so justice is at the forefront of the things that God is asking us to do. Fourth, we are to pray and work for the welfare of the nation. Again, <clears throat> from Jeremiah, uh, this time chapter 27, verse 7, it says also, <clears throat> Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. <clears throat> And I think that extends to our nation as well as just our city. And then fifth, we're to love God and our neighbor. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, 
in answer to the question that he was asked about what is the greatest commandment, Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so I would argue that based on the biblical commands above and the unique grace that God has given us as followers of Jesus and governing citizens in a representative democracy, it seems we have a responsibility before God and one another to steward our vote for the sake of good, God-glorifying governance. All right, so that's, I believe, the answer to question number one, does God want me to vote? All right. Second question would be, who has my heart? There is on, only one leader who is worthy of our hearts, including our trust, our allegiance, and hope. He is the Son of Man in whom there is salvation, and his name is Jesus. In a world with a history of competing leaders, Jesus claims to kingship far outstrip any others, and his kingdom is radically different than all earthly kingdoms. So the question is, does Jesus have your heart? If the answer to that question is no, then I invite you to yield your heart to him today. If the answer to that question is yes, then I invite you to realize the weight and the wonder of what it means to be a part of his body and his bride. It means that as the church, we are not for Trump, we are not for Biden, and we are not for anyone else. It means that in any election, the church is not for any political party or candidate. No, we are for Jesus. All our trust is in his word. All our allegiance is to his mission. All our hope is in his rule today and in his promise to return one day for those whose hearts belong to him. Who has your heart? Third, what does my neighbor need? Is a question that I think we need to, to think about as we go to the polls. Because by God's grace, we have been given so much as citizens of the United States. And for all that God has granted to us, we should be deeply grateful. At the same time, we follow a king who commands us to lay down our rights and to use the grace he has given to love our neighbors as ourselves. This, after all, is the essence of the gospel that has saved us. In the words of 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul writes, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Or as Jesus' beloved disciple John wrote, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. <clears throat> We've been redeemed from our sins and reconciled to God for all of eternity because Jesus laid down his rights for our salvation. And so consequently, with his love in our hearts, it just makes sense for us to lay down our rights for the good of others. If this is how we are to live, then is there any doubt that we should vote with these same principles in mind? 
So don't sell your soul to a political party whose campaign slogans center on you. Instead, vote in a way that demonstrates supreme love for God and selfless love for others. Dare to ask the question, who is my neighbor and what do they need? Next, we have to consider the Christian position when we vote. Now, I think to answer this, first of all, we have to answer the question, what is a Christian? Well, the simplest definition of a Christian is a Bible-believing, gospel-embracing follower of Jesus. Those things have to be present, right? You can't just be a, what I call a chino, a Christian in name only. You have to believe that the Bible, believe that what it says is truth, you have to embrace the gospel of Jesus and what he commands for us to do. And you have to follow Jesus in as well as you are able in your everyday life. Now, in regards to a Christian position on something, there is not a Christian position on many, many things. There are things that scripture is silent about, such as health care, such as gun control, such as immigration, such as foreign policy and the like. But without question, God gives many clear commands in his word that directly apply to the political issues in this world. For example, God commands people not to murder. Therefore, the Christian position on murder is simple. Murder is sin, and murderers must be punished. Likewise, as we've seen, God commands people to do justice by caring for the poor. So the Christian position is obvious. We are to take care of the poor. Because God creates all people with equal dignity in his image, the Christian position on racism is clear. Racism is evil, and we must work against it. Now consider some other issues in regards to the issue of gender. God clearly made people as distinct men and women in his image. Therefore, the Christian position affirms these two genders as gifts of grace from God to be honored in every person. As it relates to marriage, God clearly defines marriage as a monogamous union between one man and one woman. Therefore, the Christian position is that doing justice involves defending and promoting marriage according to God's definition in regards to abortion. God's word clearly indicates that he forms children in their mother's womb. Therefore, the Christian position asserts that abortion is the wrongful taking of a person's life. These and many others are the Christian position on these issues, not just in our country, but in every country. God's word is what determines whether or not there is a clear-cut Christian position on an issue. And so we've got to be very careful that we take this stand and go around and we say that thus and such is the Christian position unless we can back it up with clear, direct words from God himself. All right, so that said, how do I weigh other issues? 
And I would say, though, looking at the Christian position on issues ought to take precedence in how we vote, there are certainly other issues at play in any election where the Christian position is less apparent. In order to evaluate those things, we may want to ask some additional questions. For example, ask some questions about whatever party is in opposition to where you are right now. Are there any concepts consistent with biblical justice being promoted by the political party that I oppose? Does that political party show any concern for vulnerable individuals and groups? Does that political party demonstrate any desire for fair creation or implementation of laws? Does that, do any of that party's political candidates show evidence of decency, morality, or order? How is that political party trying to promote good and prevent evil? Now, how about some questions to ask about your own party? Are there any concepts of injustice that might be motivating my political party? Does the political party I support show any lack of concern for any vulnerable individuals or groups? Does the political party I support demonstrate any lack of focus on fair creation or implementation of laws? Do any political candidates in the party I support show a lack of decency, morality, or order? How is my political party failing to promote good and prevent evil? Asking and answering these questions can be a humbling experience, particularly when it exposes realities that we may not want to see. One of those tendencies, one of those realities, is the tendency to judge sin in those we oppose politically while excusing sin in those we support politically. Now, in regards to some specific issues, as I said, the first and, and most important factor in any issue is biblical clarity. We want to hold fast to truths and commands that are clear in God's word and have direct application to political positions in the world. Earlier, we mentioned several issues where the Christian position is unambiguous. Issues like murder, care for the poor, abortion, marriage, and racism. As we look at political issues, we want to determine how direct the line is from God's word to those issues. In our decision-making, we want to give greater weight to issues where the line is clear and direct, and lesser weight to issues where the line is less clear and more indirect. The second factor that we would consider is practical consequences. This involves evaluating the political consequences of the political decisions we make, including the effects of those decisions in our communities, our country, and in the world. As we make political calculations, we measure the weight of practical good or harm that may come to people based on our decisions. These are critical questions to ask as we remember that our goal is not checking a certain box on a ballot. Our goal is to be faithful, is faithfulness to Christ as a unified church, even as we cast different ballots. And that brings us to the last question, which is, am I eager to maintain unity in the church? 
Before going to the cross to finish the work his father gave him to do, Jesus prayed for his disciples and those who would come after them. In John 17, 20 through 21, he said, My prayer is not for the ones you gave me alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Similarly, in the opening verses to chapter 4 of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul is exhorting the church, and in verse 3 he says, Make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That the church of Jesus is to be in unity should be pretty clear to anyone reading these verses and similar ones that you can find in the Bible. But how are we to do that in a time when the political climate is so polarizing? And some church members have views that are so different from others. Well, Paul was dealing with a similar issue when he wrote to the church in Rome, and I think the answer that the Bible gives through Paul is clear. He told them to build their unity around Jesus. So how do we do that? First and foremost, when God's word speaks clearly and essentially about an issue, believe and obey his word. In other words, where on issues where we know what the Christian position is, we should take that position. The last thing we need in the church is some vague, ambiguous, superficial, flimsy unity that has nothing to do with Jesus and his word. We need a clear, specific, supernatural, rock-solid unity that is centered on Jesus and his word. However, as we've already seen, there are other issues that are less clear in God's word and are not a matter of belief or obedience for every Christian. We've discussed these issues in terms of a Christian position. But to use language from Romans chapters 14 and 15, it's possible to eat meat as a Christian, and it's possible to not eat meat as a Christian. Followers of Jesus may approach scores of issues in different ways according to their conscience. That leads to the exhortation the Bible gives to Christians who think differently about things that are not as clear or essential in God's word. When that is the case, the Bible calls us to do that which we believe best honors Jesus. Consider the language of Romans 14, verses 16, 6 through 8. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. The point is clear. It matters. In, in matters where Christians are free to differ, we are free to do what honors Jesus the most. So let's recap what's been said. God calls us to steward our vote for the sake of his commands, including his command to do justice, subject ourselves to and support government, seek the welfare of our nation, and love our neighbors as ourselves. 
the most important decision we can make is to yield our hearts to Jesus, placing all our trust, allegiance, and hope in him. The driving force in how we vote is supreme love for God and selfless love for others, both in our nation and throughout the world. We work to know the Christian position on issues that are clear according to God's word in order to form a Christian position on less clear issues that require our wisdom. Before voting, we weigh issues in terms of factors like biblical clarity and practical consequences. And no matter how we vote, we are eager to maintain the unity of the church around Jesus and his word, not around our personal political convictions. Finally, I'd like to leave you with Paul's encouragement to the Romans. In the middle of that contentious environment in which Christians were adamant in their differing convictions, Paul attempted to comfort them by writing, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's a powerful verse that provides a penetrating definition of sin. We sin whenever we do anything that is not the fruit of trust in Jesus. There are many implications to that last sentence, but let's apply it just to the issue of voting. I trust that we all want to glorify God in our vote. I'm guessing that at least some of us are afraid we might make the wrong decision. But as we think about that question, I believe Romans 14.23 teaches us that the way to sin on election day is to steward your vote apart from faith in Jesus. And that's the primary thing I want to exhort you not to do. Do not be faithless on the day when you cast your ballot. Do not trust in yourself on that day. Do not trust in a candidate or a party on that day. Do not trust in anyone or anything but Jesus on that day. Make the stewardship of your vote the overflow of radical trust in Jesus, his word to you, his spirit in you, his rule over you, and his reign, not only in our nation, but over all the nations. When you hold your ballot in your hand, pause and thank Jesus for his loving leadership of your life and his sovereign, sovereign lordship over this election. Then as you check that box, offer this simple and sincere prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come. Amen. Now invite you to find one of the little communion um, wafer and juice containers that is that should be on a chair nearby as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so we recall that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread, asked his father to bless it, and then offered it to his disciples. And he said, take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of your sins.
When the supper was ended, he took the cup, and again he asked his father to bless it, and this too he offered to his disciples. And he said, Take this, all of you, and drink, for this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do so and remember me. Father God, we lift this simple, these simple elements of bread and of juice up before you. We ask you to consecrate them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let them be for us your body and your blood that we may receive the gift of spiritual sustenance that comes from partaking in this food. The body of Jesus given for you. And the cup of Jesus shed for you. Father God, I give you thanks and praise. Bless us all as we go forth from this place. Guide and direct our steps that, mean that we may walk with you in each one. Show us where you are at work and guide us so that we may put our hand and join with you in whatever it is that we see you doing. Open our eyes to see spiritual things, to see into the unseen realm that is all around us. Guide us and direct us. We give thanks and praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We magnify your name, O Lord. Now bless all of these, your people, as they leave this place now and go forth into the world that is full of so many things that are in opposition to you and to your word. Help us to be light amidst the darkness. We ask all of these things now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We'll have some people that are scattered around the sanctuary. If anybody uh, desires prayer for anything, um, otherwise, I hope that you all have a wonderful week and look forward to uh, seeing you next week. God bless. <laughs>